And now hear God's holy word from Leviticus chapter 1. Now Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of the meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before Yahweh. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before Yahweh, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. The priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to Yahweh. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, help us as we enter once again to study and to hear your voice through your word. Help me to uh, synthesize it correctly. Help us to understand it and to make appropriate connections and appropriate applications of it. Deliver me from all error, I pray. Deliver all of us from distraction. And may this be a time where your Holy Spirit comforts us, convicts us, protects us, we pray. And, and we ask all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark Twain once remarked, He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Just reflect on that for a moment. I know it's early. It's a Sunday morning. He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. You might be able to imagine what it's like to carry a cat by the tail. If you've never actually done it, you might still be able to explain to someone else what will happen if they decide to carry a cat by the tail. But imagining it and theorizing on it and trying to explain it without having done it will never give you the level of knowledge and experience that actually carrying a cat by the tail will give you. You learn something by doing it that just can't be put into words. You gain a level of understanding that you could attain no other way. Now, I'm borrowing that parable. Uh, Reformed scholar James K.A. Smith uh, has a wonderful book that I commend to you all, uh, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. I just finally finished it. I started it back in the beginning of summer. It's one of those kinds of books you plow through and you put down, you walk away from, and you come back and you plow through it again. But these thoughts that Smith has been uh, presenting throughout many of his works have just been kind of percolating in me. And I want to do my best to give you kind of just skimming over the top, but also saying some things that we've said before and saying some things that, that you know to be true as we uh, wrap up this study on, on gratitude. Uh, Smith's message throughout his various books is that we learn and grow spiritually, not only by hearing and not only by uh, thinking, but we grow by doing. And those things that we do habitually, those daily liturgies, these shape us. They change who we are. Obedient, faithful habits have a transformative power over us. We are reformed and we are sanctified from the outside in. 
this concept, as I said, is not foreign to you. We've talked about this many times from many different angles. We've referenced it repeatedly throughout our various studies on worship. I read Leviticus this morning because I wanted to remind us all that God gave his people a specific order to follow so that as they approached him in worship, they wouldn't come doing their own thing, saying whatever was on their mind or doing whatever came to mind, but they would approach him according to his design. He says, call aside the best of your flock, bring it to the door of the tabernacle, put your hand on its head, kill it, sprinkle the blood, cut it up and arrange it on the altar after washing it with water, burn it up on the altar and let the smoke rise up to God as a sweet smelling aroma to the throne of Yahweh. This is a design that God gave his people in his wisdom to be done over and over and over and over again without variation so that it would transform them into the kinds of worshipers that are pleasing to him. He gives them this liturgy, not just so that they could do this tedious thing, but so that it would change them. It would, it would shape them. They're not permitted to innovate. They were not permitted to riff or improvise off of his order. If we were to keep reading into Leviticus 2, he says, when you bring a grain offering, I want you to follow the recipe. I want you to do exactly what I say. Don't, don't mess with the recipe. He says, don't add honey. Don't add leaven. Rather, just do what I told you to do. Now, what is the spiritual significance of that? Not adding honey or not adding leaven. What is, what is the symbolic significance of that? Well, just to take a side for a second, perhaps by leaving out the leaven of the grain offering, they remember that they were to leave behind the leaven of Egypt in the Passover and that God would provide them new bread in the wilderness. You don't have to, you don't have to bring your old bread with you. God is going to give you new bread in the wilderness. So leave out the leaven. Also leaving out the honey. They were reminded that in the Exodus, they had not yet gotten to the land of milk and honey. They hadn't yet arrived. They hadn't yet achieved their full uh, or received their full rest. So there's always a greater blessing ahead. Now, now, perhaps this is what they were to meditate on. Perhaps they would pick up on this by uh, not, not using leaven, not incorporating honey into the grain offering. Uh, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after year after year after year. Eventually, it starts to sink in. Maybe those were the things they were to think about. Maybe it was something greater. Maybe it's something I miss. Maybe it's something none of us understand. And that you would only understand it by carrying the cat by the tail. You would only understand it by doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And over the years be transformed by the power of this liturgy that God gave them. So God doesn't simply give his people things to think about. He doesn't simply give them propositions to ponder or complex theological puzzles to sort through only. He gives them also rituals by which they were to be changed and which gave them understanding of who God is and what he wants and the kinds of worshipers that he desires and what he requires. A friend of mine recently commented on the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is it's wonderful and it's great and it's, it's beautiful and it's, a, it's a, a, an incredible work. Um, every time I start to pile on accolades something, I start to sound like somebody else. I feel, I feel self-conscious. It's wonderful. It's great. It's, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. It's ne never anything better. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry about that, so I'll try not to do that. 
Um, but Westminster Larger Catechism is great. Um, but, but a friend of mine pointed out, he said, every one of the 13 acts performed by Christians during the Lord's Supper, according to Westminster Confession, a larger catechism, he said, every one of the 13 acts is something Christians do with their minds. And if you just scan down and look at the verbs there, consider, it says, it says, consider, judge, watch, review, observe, approve, wait, discern, meditate, stir up, prepare, examine, trust. That these are the things Christians are to do during the Lord's Supper, according to the larger catechism. Contrast that, and, and all 13 things are things you do with your head. Contrast that to what Jesus says to do in communion. What does he say? Three things, and they're all things you do with your body. Take, eat, drink. And what does Jesus do with the communion as he serves it? What does he do with the meal as he serves it? He takes and blesses and breaks and gives. These are all physical things, not, not merely, not simply, not only mental things. You see, we, we have this tendency to intellectualize the Christian faith. And that's why in Christian worship, we must deliberately enter the dance of worship physically, bodily, with, with our whole being, with our hands and our knees and our tongues and our taste buds and, and our, you know, our jaws. We, we chew and we drink and we kneel and we raise our hands and, and we clap and we uh, sing and we respond and we pray. These, these, these things change us and, and shape us. See, the church is not simply a dispensary of information. We're not just kind of like a library or a theology, uh, theology club. Our task is to capture the whole person, all the habits, all the loves, all the desires, all the dreams. As someone once said, the way to the heart is through the body. That, that is how we get to the heart. We're changed from the outside in. So we must not only think our way through worship or think our way through the Christian life because none of us live at any other point like that. We don't, we don't think our way through our day. We, we live through our day as, as whole people. We occupy our homes and our workplaces and our classrooms in physical embodied ways. And obedience to God in all these various spheres of our existence, obedience to God doesn't only require right thinking, though it does. Again, we're not diminishing right thinking, but, but also right actions and right words. Just a few examples of this that you're well familiar with. Think of how we teach our children to grow up into maturity. We teach them these little habits, these little routines, these little rituals, these little liturgies, right? What do you say when somebody does something good for you? What's your response? Thank you. That's what you say. You say thank you. What do you say when, when you want something? Well, you say please. What do you say when you've injured somebody or you've done wrong by someone? Well, you say please forgive me. And if you have been wronged, you say I forgive you. Uh, now, now hug and kiss and make up. You see, we, we teach them all of these little things in the hopes that they will do it until it becomes a part of them. What do you do after supper? Do you just get up and throw your chair back and leave a mess? What do you do after supper? There's a routine. There's a ritual. There's a liturgy. You, you, you clean up after yourself. You see, uh, what do you do when you come home? What, how do you do your homework? These, these things we teach until it becomes part of them, until they don't have to be told. 
And that's the same way for us throughout our lives. Any skill that we have ever mastered has required of us a mastery of a set of routines, a set of liturgies, a way of doing the same thing the same way every time until our bodies are trained to do it the right way, whether it's playing chords on a guitar or playing scales on a piano or returning a, a, a serve in tennis or hitting a golf ball off of a tee uh, or riding a bicycle. The goal is to, to do it and do it and do it until you can do it without thinking about it to do the right thing by feel, as if it were, to be so conformed to the image of Christ in righteousness. This is the goal for us, that, that doing what is right is a matter of muscle memory. In a matter of speaking, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, right? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And as we've said many times, I I know I've said many times that word service, the root word there is the word we get our word liturgy from. It's latrion and and, and the Latin word later for liturgy comes out of that word. Um, This is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the, 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 what, what, what Paul is calling for there and what he's entreating and what he's exhorting is that we be changed and renewed in such a way that our whole being is remade, body and mind, to have absorbed the gospel to the point that we carry it in our bones and it comes out of our tongue and out of our fingertips and out of our feet. Now, what, what relevance does this have to do on our study this month? Well, uh, it, it is very relevant to our study on gratitude because I want to be the kind of person who is habitually thankful. I want to be the kind of person for whom thanksgiving is part of my DNA. I don't, I don't have to remind myself to be thankful. I don't have to remind myself and force myself to, 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 to express gratitude. And so in order for that to happen, uh, then, then it, it, to, to be the kind of people, the, the kind of thankful people that God requires us to be, um, means that we're, we're, not, we're not simply going to think ourselves into greater gratitude. We have to recalibrate our whole being through liturgies of gratitude. If, if ingratitude is the mother of all sin, and we've seen that, we saw that two weeks ago and, and uh, spent some time there. If at the core of each sin is thanklessness, and if, and if misplaced gratitude, misdirected gratitude is idolatry, if, 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 misplaced gratitude uh, places worship in that which is false, then, then in order for us to turn from sin and idolatry, then we must be practiced very skilled in the, in, in the grace of gratitude. We have to be trained to love the right things the right way as God has required us. So faithful, obedient thanksgiving is at the heart loving what God loves. However, what's the catch? What's the problem? Our hearts are twisted. This doesn't come naturally to us. We are bent in such a way that we're inclined to hate what God loves and love what God hates. Our hearts are enticed and enamored by and excited by all kinds of rebellion and evil. Proverbs 9 says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. It's so silly that stolen bread is really something to be excited about. It's sweet and, bre- and stolen, or I'm sorry, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Stolen water is sweet. 
It's, it's like we don't care what we're doing as long as it feels like we're getting away with something. We, we don't care what it is as long as it feels illicit and wrong. It doesn't, even if it's bread or it's water, simple, uh, common gifts of God, how can you mess up there? Well, we can mess it up. And we can take God's good gifts and we can turn them into idols. We can take God's good gifts and by their use, we sin with, with them. We use them in sinful ways, perverting their use, not giving thanks to God for them and not using them with gratitude, but turning them into means to wicked ends. And, and Paul describes that in Romans 1, doesn't he? That, that desperate uh, descent into um, rebellion, failing to be thankful, exchanging the glory of God for corruption, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So the opposite of that awful, wicked direction is, is desiring all the good things that God has for us and receiving them with joy and thanking God for them, not ignoring them, not by pietistically, you know, acting like we're too holy for God's gifts, but, but actively engaging them and delighting in them. To be the kind of people who bust out in thanksgiving and gratitude and overflow with thanks for all the good things that God has given. That, that's, the, that's the beginning of an antidote to idolatry and disobedience. So, so just a few, a few reflections on how you and I can cultivate gratitude. How do we learn liturgies of thanksgiving so that it becomes part of who we are? Just as, just as the sacrificial order that was given to Israel was woven into who they were as they obeyed week after week. How do we do the same with gratitude and, and thanksgiving? Well, um, first of all, it's critical that you and I diagnose those daily liturgies, those daily habits, and replace bad ones, uh, ungracious, unthankful habits. Replace those with faithful, thankful liturgies, daily habits. We, we, we all have these, these habits, these liturgies that we've settled into. Um, there, there is a routine that we follow when we walk in the door at night or when we walk in the door to our office or when we start our day. There are all these little, these little habitual, you know, you could, you could almost put dance steps to it, how we follow our, our order and how we do the things that we, we do. And we've settled into these daily habits. We are also at the same time immersed in environments that train our hearts a certain way to be attracted to certain things. Just as our, our, our tastes are affected by what we eat. You ever, you ever thought about that? Nobody in, nobody in medieval Europe ever craved an Oreo, you know? They, nobody, in, uh, nobody ever craved a, a Big Mac 500 years ago. Why? Why, why, why not? Well, because they hadn't trained their palates to in, enjoy those things. They never, they never had them. But, but if we do desire those things, it's because we have developed certain tastes. You ever give coffee, black coffee to a four-year-old? You know, you just want to do it to see what face they make. I mean, that's about the, the that's what it's worth is just see what they, how they respond. They're not used, their palates are not trained to, to accept or appreciate those things. But, but, I love and, and exist on coffee because I have been trained to, to depend upon it, as many of us have. Um, we, we have developed certain tastes. And it's not just food. That's just an easy example. We are always cultivating an appetite for entertainments and distractions 
for practices and pursuits, you and I are trained to hunger after certain things and to say, that is what I'm looking for. That satisfies me. That makes me feel good. We're trained to thirst for certain things. And in doing so, in these environments that, that train our desires, that, that train our hungers and thirsts, many of the things we come to thirst for are wicked and, rebell uh, and rebellious and idolatrous. They're things that will destroy us. What's so insidious about, about so many of these things is that many of our daily routines impact us in ways we don't think about. There are things that we, we do and rhythms we fall into that, that change us without us ever knowing what they're doing to us. So, so here's the catch. We can't just think ourselves out of old tastes and think ourselves out of bad habits by the power of positive thinking and, and try to think ourselves into new tastes. We have to assess the habits that we're caught up in and then deliberately, forcefully, prayerfully replace our old routines with new ones. What, what daily liturgies in your life, in your house, in your workplace, what daily liturgies are leading you to ingratitude? discontent, fear, idolatry, bitterness, laziness. And then, and, then, and then look at the situation and think, if I were a child and an adult were to come along and help me fix that problem, what would that adult say? You know, when you've got a child that won't clean up their room, you just start taking things away until they, until they clean up the room. Uh, you, you can uh, begin by uh, taking away whatever the immediate distraction is. You can also uh, take away whatever feeling of security and, 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 and sense of you know, joy they have in disobedience by reminding them of the, the penalty of, of disobedience through discipline. But, but you remove the thing that, that, uh, that, that prevents them from obeying. Here. I'm, I'm taking the iPad now. You'll get it back maybe in a week, but now, now clean your room. Um, I'm transforming your life. Look, look what I just did for you. Shouldn't you thank me? You know, I'm, uh, I, I just unplugged the TV and, and I canceled the internet. And now we're going to figure out how to keep the house clean without, without internet. Can we figure this out? You see, I'm, I'm transforming your life by the power of ritual, by the power of habit. I'm transforming you. So, so think, about, think about how easy that is to do with children. Now, now think about yourself. Maturity and self-discipline require us to do those hard things for ourselves. Jesus, Jesus went over the top, right? Jesus said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, right? He, he talks about these drastic uh, responses to the habits that, that kill us, that destroy us. One, one easy example of these, these bad habits, these bad liturgies that we settle into is how we have this tendency to inculcate and reinforce habits of criticism and, and discontent and judgment. Our natural response to so many things is a sneer or an eye roll. You know, I'm not, I'm not thankful for that. I'm not thankful for that person. I'm not thankful for that event. I'm not thankful for that opportunity. I'm not thankful for that thing that somebody produced or somebody gave me. I don't, I don't love what you did and I don't love, I don't love you. That's, that's kind of, we, we've learned, that's a learned response. We've taught ourselves how to respond that way and not just to one aggravating thing, but, but 
all the time, anything that puts us out, anything that keeps us from doing what we want to do, it's an eye roll, it's a sneer. What if we deliberately, purposely decided as couples and as families that we're going to retrain ourselves to stop griping at the root and make ourselves express thanks? Say it with me. Say, mouth the words. Thank you. Thank you. Can you say it? Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Say it until you mean it. You, you've heard this, the phrase, fake it until you make it. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I like how David says it much better in Psalm 141. David says, set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be an excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. So, so David's prayer is retrain my taste, Lord. Retrain the things that I hunger for and that I thirst for and that I desire. Retrain me to love what you love, Lord, and to respond righteously and, and with gratitude even to correction when correction comes. How much grace do we need to be able to do that? How, much, how powerless are we to do that uh, on our own? But we pray with David, Lord, uh, 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 change me, transform me. I can't, I can't do this on my own. So here's the challenge. Think of, think of a pattern that you keep falling into or that your family keeps falling into, a pattern that you know is not pleasing to God. You know you're not showing gratitude to God by the way you respond. You have an ugly liturgy of hatefulness that you keep going through a little order of worship. It's almost like you could put it in the bulletin and say, he's going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and they're going to do this, and I'm going to respond this way. All right, we ready? All right, here we go. Uh, let's, let's, let's run through the play. And, and we do it, and we hit our marks every time. You know what's happening next. You know this, so you say, here, what we need is we need a new order of worship. We need a new liturgy. We need a new service. We're going to institute a new order. Here's what we're going to do when this thing happens again. We're going to cultivate gratitude by examining our habits and replace the ingrateful habits with thankful ones. Secondly, quickly, um, as we do this, we have to and must develop an acute sense of the power of rival liturgies. There are those habits and practices that are institutions of our culture, but they attack and they undermine and they distract us from right worship before God. Always, always, always ask, what is this teaching me to love? How is it teaching me to love? Many of these, these rival idolatrous liturgies are so difficult for us to call out and point to because they're so ingrained in us. They're like, they're like water to a fish. I've I, I never known anything else. We have dwelled in them for so long. They're the air we breathe and, and we don't recognize how they have shaped us to our core. So, so one example is every, every time there's some scandal or there's some national outrage or some, some big controversy and everybody's screaming and ranting and everybody's got an opinion on it and everybody asks you your opinion, that's when you stop and say, okay, now, wait a minute, why am I supposed to be outraged? R run me back through this again. To whom am I supposed to direct my outrage? And most importantly, who wants me to be outraged? What am I being distracted from? 
How am I being manipulated and used here? You see, that, that, that help us, uh, helps us to pull away. Some, some of the, a couple of the books we've read as men and, and families over the last year have used the word uh, self-differentiation and, and used it in a good way. That, that we're, we're able, we, we have such a, a sense of our identity and union with the Lord Jesus that, that he is our identity. He defines who we are and what we love to the point that, that we can extricate ourselves and step back and say, what's going on here? What's being done to me? Do I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really like where this is headed. I don't like where this is all, all going. This is a vital skill to develop because our society is saturated with a number of secular ideals, uh, secular ideals of what it, what it takes to be successful, of what it means to be a good citizen, of what's required to be a good patriotic American, or, or expectations of just what it means to be a normal person. You want to be normal, right? We all want to be normal. Guess what? <laughs> uh, you're, you're not, and... Uh, you, you won't be, uh, if you're faithful, you, you won't be just a normal go-with-the-flow American. All these various visions of, of normalcy, though, are reinforced with liturgies, routines, habits, practices that you must follow to maintain the image of the ideal. But as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as people who belong to the city of God and not the city of man, first and foremost, we must always stop and ask, what is being thrust upon me here? How am I being led? Where am I being taken? You know, what is this handbasket and where are we going, as you've heard said? What, what am I enthroning by engaging in this cultural liturgy, in this civil religion? What am I saying by my actions, my words, my songs, my genuflections? And everything from a baseball game to a trip to the mall to a 4th of July parade has its liturgies, it, it has its habits, it has its routines, it's, it has its own code of behavior, its own sacrificial, almost Levitical order, a procedure that you follow step by step. So it's incumbent upon us not to swallow these whole, to actually step up and oppose those parts that oppose the Lord Jesus, those practices that, that would take gratitude and praise and glory that belongs to him alone and give them to something else. Be aware of the power of rival liturgies. Have your antennas up for idolatry all the time. This for me, uh, as I said a month ago at, at our uh, men's forum, this is my biggest objection to secular education. But secular education doesn't merely train us to think the wrong things. Secular education teaches us to love the wrong things. It trains our children not in the worship of the Lord Jesus. Secular education trains our children in worship of the state. It, 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 it trains them in the worship and the liturgy of secularism. So it's not simply a matter of bad information. You may think, well, the, the, the state system and the schools, they, they, it's good information, right? You know, two plus two, six plus seven, you know, the sun goes around the, the, the earth goes around the sun. Almost got that backwards. Uh, that's another school uh, we used to go to. Um, no, we, uh, I'm being silly. Uh, the, uh, that it's all the same information, right? No, it's not simply a matter of information. It's bad formation. That's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I oppose. It's the bad formation 
The pursuit of Christian education is not simply to baptize a secular education and say, well, we're just going to swap out the bad information for good information. That's not enough. In fact, if all we impart is knowing and all we impart is content and information without also the physical embodied training in how to love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we're just training up a herd of hypocrites who know all the right answers but don't love any of it. This is the deal. We have to be hypervigilant about the power of rival, secular, godless, heathen liturgies. Do, do the marketers care what you think? Do the internet perverts care what you think? Do the Marxists all throughout our government think about, or care about what you think? No, they're after what you love. They want to change what you love, and they want to warp the way that you love. They're after your loves. And if all we're concerned about is what we think, we're, we're, not, we're not getting the whole thing. Listen closely to what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, through the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, those rival liturgies, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Uh, all the readings today, uh, th this last day of the Pentecost uh, season, they were all about the enthronement and the, the, the glories of Jesus the King. Uh, we, we heard from Luke, the, the crucifixion account, that Jesus is enthroned as King on the, on the cross. This last Sunday of the, of the Pentecost season, we're called back to remember this abiding truth that, that Jesus is King and, and, and as we heard from also, we heard from Colossians, he's king over everything, not just, not just over our heads, not just over our hearts. And so with this being true, why would we exchange being rooted and built up in Jesus, exchange that for a secular religion that has no power, no future, and that's going to be destroyed in judgment and, and, and make that exchange just to be acceptable, just to live up to some pagan cultural expectation of respectability, some, some pagan expectation of honor. It's baffling, and yet so easily, so willingly, and thoughtlessly we make that exchange. We trade our inheritance for a mess of pottage, except, except Esau actually got a bowl of soup out of it. I don't know what we get out of that exchange at all. Cultivating gratitude for the Lord Jesus and cultivating gratitude for his good gifts requires us to seek out and eliminate rival liturgies that steal his glory. Do not engage in idolatry if you're going to endeavor to be a grateful person. Lastly, finally, the, the cultivation of gratitude is the work of training our hearts to love good things. The, the cultivation of gratitude is the work of training our hearts to love what God loves. A big part of raising children is teaching them to expand their horizons and try new things. As I said a minute ago, their palates are untrained. Their imaginations are untrained. How often have you gone to a store and the kids say, can we have a snack? And you say, yeah, sure, a snack. And you're thinking, what? I don't know, peanuts, uh, cheese stick, uh, pretzels, you know, something like that. And, and what do they come to the counter with? This weird 
saccharine, sugary, nasty, weird concoction. You know, usually there's like this toy attached to the top of the candy container to get their attention. This weird, sick, cloyingly sweet thing. He said, I said a snack. That's not substantial. That's not, that's not what, what, what is that? What, what have you got there? Uh, that's what they gravitate to. What do they gravitate to? What is easy? What is accessible? And our job is to shepherd them toward better things. Learn how to appreciate this. You're not going to like it the first time. It will be different, but learn how to love this good thing. And you know, what's good for our children is also good for us. As a pastor friend of mine has said, if you never try new things, you miss out on some of life's greatest disappointments. And uh, that's, that's good to remember. But you also miss out on some good things that require effort to enjoy. Dark chocolate, black coffee, good wine, Russian novels, medieval poetry, German opera. We are the image bearers of our creator. We are his representatives and his agents in the world. We are given the task of ruling over and caring for all of creation, opening up all its potential through through the works of our hands, through culture. So just as God created and rejoiced over creation saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. So we rejoice in and over all creation, which includes human culture. Now, human culture and all of its products are not neutral. It's not all good. Some of it's empty. Much of it's rebellious, wicked, depraved. Some of it is just sugar for an untrained palate. But that which is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report, virtuous and praiseworthy, those things we celebrate and appreciate and use. We open them up and take them further. We use them to the glory of God. We appropriate them for the kingdom. The church is the occupying army in the world. We make our presence known. We claim things in the name of Jesus for his crown. We don't shrink back and cower and hide. We courageously plunder this creation and do the work of application and appreciation and applying ourselves with patience to learn how to love this creation that God has declared good. Now this, this is marred by sin. It's set back by idolatry and wickedness, but it has been redeemed by Jesus. This is our world to occupy. And because Jesus has claimed it for himself, we cultivate gratitude by training our hearts to love all that he has said is good. So, so wrapping up this, this short study for these last couple of weeks, I, I want to leave you with this. You and I are always being trained by our environment to love certain things and to love them a certain way. We can either go with the flow and let the force of gravity take over and just love whatever dumb, empty, vapid, worthless, idolatrous thing that everyone else is going after. Or we can swim against the stream and develop new habits, new tastes, and, and by those things, train us to love the good things that God has given us. What has he given us? Word and sacrament, fellowship, friendship, duty, Sacrifice, service, family, work, creativity, art, music, literature, food, and drink. And in receiving these things, we give thanks to the giver. To not let his gifts terminate on us, but to be a conduit through which his goodness flows to the world. 
This is thus always an underlying goal and focus of our worship. We get an hour and a half together every week to learn how to love God and how to give thanks for everything. So this time is essential for teaching us how to love, how to respond to God, to allow this liturgy to shape us and shape our responses. And then all of the downstream habits, all of the downstream liturgies are informed by this. This week, the nation stops to give thanks. We have a whole day set aside for it. But to whom are we giving thanks? For what are we giving thanks? You all have the answers to those questions. You know to whom you give thanks. You know for what you are giving thanks. Lead the world in thanksgiving before God. Lead your families in the proper giving of thanks. Do not pass up any opportunity to express gratitude. And in so doing, we, we avoid the idolatry of ingratitude, the disobedience, the law-breaking of ingratitude. Let's pray for this. Father in heaven, we ask you to transform us and make us the kind of people for whom thanksgiving is, is, is who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our character. We are a thankful people first and foremost. Let these things sink down into our ears and get into our hearts. Retrain us in how to love like you love, to love the things that you love. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you and ask us, we ask you to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we commit all these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.